So where are we right now? Where are we in the book of Revelation? Well, we've considered the seven personal messages that Jesus had to the seven churches of Asia. We then moved on to the vision that John was able to see of the Father on his throne in heaven. And then we saw Jesus in heaven. We read about John's vision of Jesus in heaven portrayed as both the what and the what in heaven. That's right, the lamb and the lion. He's the lamb from the, that was slain for the sins of the world and the lion from the tribe of Judah, and he is the only one worthy to do what? Yes, break open the book with the seven seals. He's the only one in heaven that is worthy to reveal the outcome to the battle taking place between the army of God and the army of Satan in the first century. In the first century. Remember, with the breaking of each seal, a different part of the story of Revelation is told, right? The story begins with the preaching of the gospel. The gospel goes out, the white horse. The gospel is being preached. Through the gospel, Jesus is conquering the hearts of men. But as the gospel is being preached, what follows the preaching of the gospel even to this day? Conflict. Conflict comes with the preaching of the gospel. Satan's not going to let God's people just, just be able to go out and preach and have no problems. Oh, we're going to have problems. We're going to have resistance. We're going to have a lot of resistance. We're going to have more people resist the message than accept the message. We see that all the time, right? I mean, we got, what, 5 million people here in Phoenix and 200 people here at this congregation? That, that ain't good math there. There's a lot more people in the bed this morning asleep than here worshiping God or anywhere uh, in a faithful congregation worshiping God. There are going to be more people who reject the gospel then accept the gospel. That was true in the first century. That's going to be true today. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7 that when it comes to the path of destruction, that path is what? It's a broad path. There's a lot of people on that path. But when it comes to the path that leads to eternal life, that path is it's narrow. It's not that many people traveling on it. Not that many people want to serve God. That doesn't mean that God doesn't want everybody to be saved. We're going to, we're going to learn that God does everybody, want everybody to be saved, but unfortunately, not everybody wants salvation. Not everybody wants to obey God. They want to do their own thing, and, and that's a problem. That is the main reason why I believe many people become atheists. It's not because there's no evidence for the existence of God. It's because they don't like the implication of the evidence. The implication of the evidence is if there is a God, then guess what? I got to do what he says. I got to live by his will. And I don't want to do that. And so the, the easy thing to do is just deny his existence, that I can live my life however I want to live it. So a lot of people reject the truth. And then, as far as this persecution goes, this is a big thing to con continue to, to mention, this conflict, as Brother Gary brought up here. There's so many scriptures that try to drill this in our head in Revelation. Like Revelation 1 and verse 9, where John, the apostle, he says, I'm your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. John says, I'm part of this. I'm being persecuted. 
I'm a fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom. The kingdom is in existence at this time. And perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. Why? Because of the word of God, because of the preaching of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 2.10, Jesus said, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Then he said this to the church at, at Smyrna, if I'm not mistaken. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. The devil's going to persecute you. So that you're going to be tested. This is part of your testing. And you're going to have tribulation for 10 days for a complete amount of time. For a period of time, you're going to be tested. But be faithful unto death. Be faithful even if it means you have to give your life for me, and I'll give you the crown, the crown of life. There's the idea of persecution, conflict. Revelation 2, verse 13. Remember, we, we've learned that this persecution affected Christians in so many different ways. And not only led to them being imprisoned and mocked and ridiculed in their society, but it, it led also to economic oppression, right? The economic oppression. And not just the economic oppression, but eventually it led to them being murdered, even killed by the government because of their faith. And Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. Now we have an individual Christian being called out here by Jesus. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one. Jesus said Antipas was a faithful man, and he was killed among you. He was killed by persecutors of the gospel where Satan dwells. So that's important to continue to emphasize that. The gospel is preached. The gospel is conquering the hearts of people. Persecution is following. It looks like God's people are going to lose this battle. It looks like Satan is going to use a world empire to stomp out the church. But with the breaking of the sixth seal, after the, the Christians in the fifth seal asked God, how long are we going to have to watch our, our, our brethren die and, and how, well, how long is it going to take before you avenge us? With the breaking of the sixth seal, we learn that God is going to win. That's the breaking of the sixth seal. God will bring judgment. He will bring judgment in his time. And so that is the story of Revelation. The breaking of the seals is the story of the, of the, is the story of Revelation in a nutshell. But the rest of the book is going to give us the details of that story. The details of the story of the book with the six seals. And so that section begins in chapter 8. That section, begins, that section begins in chapter 8. So I'm going to show you a lot of things here on these next few slides. And I uh, hope you can catch these things real quick. So I want to kind of jump through them kind of fast. In Revelation 6, Jesus, the lion and the lamb, began to open a book in the right hand of God that was sealed with seven seals. Six of the seals were broken. Remember, there are seven, but we've only considered six that are broken so far. And they're all broken by Jesus. And Revelation 7, that's what we study for two classes. In Revelation 7, that chapter provides a pause in the action while God assures his people that he's going to take care of them during this difficult time. Remember, that's the interlude. Before the seventh seal is broken, there's a pause in the action. God says, hold on a second. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to mark my people, remember? I'm going to make sure that you are sealed. God promises to take care of them during the time of persecution in some way, providentially, 
Doesn't mean they weren't going to experience some persecution, but he was going to look out for them in some way. And he ultimately was going to bring them into heaven. That was the second half of Revelation 7. Remember, there are two visions in Revelation 7. There is the vision of God's people being marked on the earth and God assuring them that he's going to be with them while he brings judgment on the empire. And in the second half of the chapter, this is God ultimately delivering his people from their enemies by bringing them into heaven. There's the physical part and the spiritual part of that chapter. Revelation 8, where we're at today, the action resumes. We pick up the story again. The pause, the interlude is over. The action resumes with the breaking of the seventh seal. Now, the breaking of the seventh seal is, is the big deal here. That's the big deal. There are three series of seven that dominates the action found in Revelation. Three series of seven. You got the seven seals. We've studied that. You got the seven trumpets, Revelation 8 and 9. You got the seven bowls of God's wrath, Revelation 16. So there are three series of seven that dominate the action. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. Try to memorize that if you can. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. That's, that's what dominates the book, the three series of seven. The seven seals tell you the basic story of Revelation. I, I've explained that on many occasions. The seven trumpets represent God's warning. God always gives people a chance to repent before he wipes them out. Haven't you noticed that in your Bible? The seven trumpets represent God's warning. And the seven bowls of wrath represent God says time is up. Time's up. You're going down. No more time to repent. So you got, we, we looked at the seven seals. We know the basic story. We're going to look at the warnings God, of God now. The patience of God. Because God's a patient God. But his patience has, limit, has limits, doesn't it? And that's the seven bowls of wrath. God's going to bring full judgment. There's also a pattern that is followed with the sevens. You got the three series of seven. Watch for this. The first four are always the same. The first four and the sevens are always the same. There's an interlude, break in the action between the sixth and the seventh. And the seventh in the series is always transitional. Somebody's like, that's really confusing. It's like a college class. Well, it'll make more sense as we go on. The first four are always similar in the seventh. The fifth and the sixth are always different. Okay, there's an interlude, a break in the action between the sixth and the seventh always. We've already seen that with the sixth seal. After it's broken, there is a interlude. You're going to see that also when it comes to after the sixth trumpet is blown. Guess what? There's another break in the action. And then the seventh in the series is always transitional. The seventh seal, when it's broken, opens up the seven trumpets. The, the seventh trumpet opens up the seven bowls of wrath. The seventh something always open up, opens up another series of seven. So that's something to remember also. The seventh seal moves us into a new series of seven. Now the action will center around seven angels who will sound the seven trumpets. As each one sounds, an important event, an important event takes place. 
Now, before we dive into the chapter, I want to show you something else. You need to watch out for characters now. This is an important time in the book. You got characters that are going to be popping up. It's like watching a movie. It's like watching a play. You know, movies and plays and books are always dominated by characters. Now, we've been introduced a lot to the main character of the book, who is Jesus, the lion and the lamb. But you got some other characters about to pop up here. And these are the enemies, the bad guys in the story. Bad guys are the red dragon, the sea beast, the earth beast, and the harlot. The red dragon, there's no doubt who that is. That's Satan. He's the red dragon. He's the main bad guy in the story. We may look at Rome as, as, as the main bad guy, but Rome is not the main bad guy. Rome is nothing more than a pawn of Satan. Satan is the main one here. He's the red dragon that's introduced in chapter 12. And then you have his henchmen. His henchmen are introduced after that, and all three of the henchmen represent aspects of the Roman Empire, at least in my understanding. The sea beast is the political power of Rome. The earth beast is the false religious system, the emperor worship system. And then the harlot, which represents the wicked and gross immorality that's in the empire. All of these bad guys here work for Satan, and they all represent aspects of the empire, okay? So we're still talking about really Satan and an empire, but the bad guys here, the sea beast, earth beast, harlot, just represent different parts of that empire that God is fed up with, and that is oppressing God's people. So just look out for that. I'll put this chart up more as we keep going. I just want to kind of get your mind rolling as, as you keep reading. You got these bad guys popping up. And notice how we're talking about first century stuff. We haven't said anything about 21st century stuff. While there's application to be made here, you got to remember Revelation is a book about things soon to come to pass. It's not about stuff happening 2,000 years later. So just, just, so just be mindful of that, okay? So before we read Revelation 8, let's just, let me pause for a moment or two because I know I've, I've said a lot there. I'll let you digest this a little bit. Does anybody have a comment, question about anything so far as we get ready to dive into some, a new section of Revelation here? Anything at all. I, wanna, I don't want to overlook anybody. We good? Yes, yes, sir, Caleb. Go right ahead, sir. No, that's a good point, Caleb. I like that a lot. I never heard that, that put that way, but that makes a lot of sense. And hopefully it can, it can help make sense of some things for folks here. So I, I, like, I appreciate that comment. That's very good. Uh, anyone else before we move on? Good thought. Okay, everyone, let's go to Revelation 8. Let's just read the Word of God. Um, as you're going to see, you may look at chapter 8 and, and think we're going to need a lot of time for this. I don't teach Revelation, you know, like... Some might want to want to I don't break down every part of every verse. 
I'm just going to give you the main point of this because I don't want to, we're not going to confuse you here. My job is to help, and Mitchell agree with this, he's teaching here also. You know, when you have a setting of people and, and you're trying to make a hard book easy to understand for all people, that's challenging because you got people in the room who've been Christians one year, less than a year, and some been Christians for 60 years. You got doctors and lawyers, you got all people who do other things. You got people who have PhDs, people who have high school diplomas. So you have to find a way to make information in such a way that where you have a big audience of people who come from all these different backgrounds, but you want to make it simple enough to where they all can understand it and they can all get some out of it. And that's challenging. <laughs> and that's my job every week, <laughs> figuring out you know, how to bring everybody together with the same message and challenge people who have different intellects and different backgrounds. So that's why I believe the best approach to take here is to not teach this in such a way to where everybody leaves here like this is as clear as mud, but you want it to be as clear as Florida water, okay? <laughs> Brother James know what I'm talking about. You want it clear as Miami water, okay? And that's what we're gonna try to do here. Because there's no point in me trying to teach this if nobody understands it. I'm wasting my time. We got to understand it, right? So let's see if we can understand it. Let's see if we can, we'll see if we can bring it all together. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, verse 1, there was silence in heaven for about an hour and a half. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he may add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashings of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass were burned up. The second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in the mid heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about, they are about to sound. So let's, Talk about this a little bit. The seventh seal. Who breaks the seventh seal? The lamb does. Jesus does, right? Once the seal is broken, 
there are four things that appear to take place in these first four verses. The, the seventh seal is broken. The first thing that happens is in heaven there is silence. There's silence in heaven. There's silence for a period of time. Now, why silence? Well, some suggest that silence could represent reverence for the occasion. Silence typically, and we understand this, represents reverence. You're silent during a period of reverence, right? God's about to work here. He's about to go to work. Some also say, and it could be both, that this represents delayed judgment, a delay in the judgment. And that's really what the seven trumpets are about. It is God not exercising the full judgment yet. He's given partial judgment. He's given a warning judgment. He's trying to get his people a chance. But there's silence in heaven. And the same seven angels are given what? Somebody say it again. Seven trumpets. That's right. That's right, Daisy. Seven trumpets come out of the seven seals. So the first thing is you got silence in heaven. The second thing, seven angels are given seven trumpets. Thirdly, what do you see about prayer in verse 3? What do you see about prayer? Do you see anything about prayer in verse 3? What do you learn about prayer there? Prayers come before God. That's the whole point there. The prayers are coming up before God like the incense. So God is hearing the prayers, or the prayers are going up before God, and then fourthly, verse 4, we see God hears the prayers. So we see not just God working here, but God's people are working through prayer. So you have God, you got heaven is silent, you got seven angels, they're about to go to work on the behalf of God, and then you got the people of God doing something on the earth. They're praying to God, they're praying to him. And God and the prayers are coming up before God and God is going to attend to the prayers and he's going to respond to the prayers and, and, and hear the prayers. Brother Gary, yes, sir. I can't. <laughs> I, I, I can't. Uh, uh, you know, Gary, and you know how I am on this. All I can do really is go on what the scripture says. Um, you know, I, I just take that to be, you know, I'm a simple guy. And I just take that to mean that the prayers are going up. And God is hearing the prayers. And I think that's all we need to, I think to me, that's all that's really relevant. Is God is hearing the prayers, taking the prayers, and he's going to attend to the person. Now, obviously, there's probably some Old Testament tabernacle priest stuff going on there. Well, it sounds like assistance to the prayer. Yes. That, that, I have no problem with that. Anyone? Yes, sir, Brother Dunn. The Holy, the Holy Spirit aids our prayers. He prays for things that we don't know in need. You're getting into my sermon now on the Holy Spirit. So. <laughs> no, but that's right. That's Romans 8. Romans 8 says, and... If you hear this again in the future, near future, act like you hadn't heard it. But uh, <laughs> Romans 8 says that when we pray, sometimes we don't know how to pray. Sometimes we don't know what to say. And does the Holy Spirit do anything during that time? He intercedes. He's doing something. He aids our prayers. And so that could be it, too. That could absolutely be it. That would go right in hand with Scripture. 
the Holy Spirit aiding the prayers of God's people. And I thank God the Holy Spirit does that. Because don't you struggle sometimes knowing what to say to God and even what to think as you speak to God? Of course you do. We're talking to God. But the Holy Spirit comes to our aid. So that, that's a good point. So there's a silence in heaven. Seven angels are given seven trumpets. The prayers of God's people go before him. God hears the prayers. The silence probably represents reverence towards this event. This seventh seal being broken is the beginning of God's judgment on the empire. The angels being given the trumpets signifies God giving them authority. These are not literal trumpets here, but it signifies God giving them authority to carry out his will. In the Bible, have we ever seen God using angels to exercise judgment? Do you remember the Assyrians? I think that was Isaiah. We, we studied from Isaiah this morning. Remember Isaiah 37? When, when, when the Assyrians were right before they were about to go into Judah to try to conquer Hezekiah's kingdom. The night before, God sent what into the camp of the Assyrians? He sent an angel, and that angel killed 185,000 soldiers. Jesus said in the garden that he could have called legions, 12 legions of angels to come and, and wipe out the world. So God uses angels to exercise judgment on many occasions. The language of verse 3, and kind of going with your comment, Gary, symbolize the prayers of God's people. The language of verse 4 signifies God hearing and receiving the prayers. Okay, so look at verse 5. Verse 5 there, again in, in chapter 8. The angel took the censer. He filled it with fire of, of the altar. And, you know, all this just brings me back to stuff from the Old Testament uh, with things going on with the priests, but we don't have to get into all that. But the angel takes the censer. He fills it with the fire of the altar. He throws it to the earth. Now, I know it's, we're, we're literalizing this. I, I get it. He throws it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Okay. If we can avoid making the mistake of trying to literalize this, what is the point of that verse? What is the point? What does that symbolize? The angel doing this here. What is this? It should be very easy. It represents God's judgment. That's all it represents. Don't make it too complicated. This is angels being used to exercise judgment. God is going to bring judgment. That's all it represents. So let's not make the mistake of making it too complicated. It's God's judgment. There is no historical evidence that there was a literal day like this that occurred. <laughs> Believe me, if there was, we would know about it. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree? This is no literal day here. Revelation 1 and verse 1, these things were communicated or signified to the Apostle John. This is signified language. Brother Dunn, go ahead, sir. You, you mentioned that, that we're looking at, at a warning before the actual judgment. I keep going back to, to Romans 1, because after he talks about the, the gospel being the power of God's salvation, and it describes us the, the righteousness of God, verse 18 of chapter 1 talks about the wrath of God is Revealed. And that wrath is, is revealed to us knowing what is there 
Absolutely. In fact, that, that's going to bring us to, the, to something else I want to say here. But that's a good point. Verse 6. Look at verse 6 now. What are the seven angels preparing to do in verse 6? They're ready, they're ready to blow the trumpets. They're ready to blow the trumpets. The trumpets are being used. Well, before I ask that, let me ask this question. When you read the writings of the prophets, let's talk about trumpets a little bit. When you read the writings of the prophets, what are trumpets used for in the Old Testament on many occasions? Because we read about trumpets throughout the Bible, don't we? Say it again, somebody. Call the righteous. Is that what you said? Call the, I'm sorry, the masses. <laughs> I struggle. Okay, call the action. Yes. In fact, sometimes they're used to call assemblies together. That's action. Yes. Uh, but you're going to say that, James? So that sometimes they're used to call assemblies of God's people together. Um, can anyone else think of times where the prophets or other times in the Old Testament where you find trumpets and the use of trumpets? Yes. Yes. The prophets particularly. Daniel, Joel, many of the prophets use trumpets in their writings to talk about warning. The sounding of the trumpet is a warning. So I think that's what's going on here, James. I think the trumpets here represent God warning these evil people, you need to change. You need to change because I'm about to wipe you out. God often, and listen carefully to me on this, please. God often warns the wicked before executing judgment. He often gives the wicked a chance to repent. You know why he does that? Because God is a patient God. God is a God who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Remember what Peter said in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9? He talks about the patience of God. And he talks about how God wants all people to come to repentance. He wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, I'm not saying that God will just take it, take it, take it. That's not how God is. But he is patient. And I think his patience is even something that we can't fathom and comprehend. He's a patient God. He's going to try to give these wicked people. Wicked people, mind you, who are trying to destroy his kingdom. Wicked people, mind you, who are trying to wipe out his people. Wicked people who are involved in idolatry and God still is patient towards them. He's a patient God. He's a merciful God. But Lance, and then I need, to, I need to get moving here. Go right ahead, sir. Yeah, that, that was, Jonah do that, but he, don't, go, don't, don't go there. I'm, I'm about to go. Hold on. Y'all always like to get ahead. Y'all just good Bible students. I get it. I mean, I get it. I get it. Because that goes to my next point. Can you think of any examples where God delays judgment? Well, Lance just gave us one, right? What was it, Lance? Oh, well, Jonah, but Jonah was upset. He was a. He knew God was a forgiving. God. There's a contrast there between Jonah and God when it came to forgiveness, mercy, patience. Jonah said, "I don't like this." He was the true patriot. I don't want these people to rise up because I'm an Israelite and I hate these people. And God's like, "No, they may not be Hebrews, but they're still my creation." And I want them to be safe, and I want to give them a chance. Brother Granville, yes, sir. And you would just go back and, uh, that's, a war that's exactly what it is. It's a warning. And Mitch gave us a whole series of lessons on that. Jesus is saying, if you don't change and repent, what am I going to do? Take your candlestick away. I'm going to remove your candle. 
I didn't even think of that, and I should have. But that's exactly what Revelation 2 verse 3 is. It's a warning to Christians, the seven churches. What about Israel in the Old Testament? Doesn't God send prophets to them often to say, you need to repent. If you don't repent, you're going to go into captivity. Jeremiah, go ahead and go in your Bible to Jeremiah 18, and we'll stop at Jeremiah 18 this morning. But Jeremiah, Jeremiah did that. Isaiah did that. Ezekiel did that. I mean, the prophets often were used as God's instruments to warn the people, particularly the Israelites, you need to change to avoid experiencing God's wrath. Look at Jeremiah 18, and we'll start with verse 1. Jeremiah 18, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, from the Lord, saying, Arise and go to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel, as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Cannot I, house of Israel, deal with you as the potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot it, to pull it down or destroy it. If that nation, if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, guess what? I will relent. You see that? I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. On at another moment I may speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it, if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which, which I had promised to bless it. What is God saying there? I can change my mind. And if, a, if I'm going to bring a kingdom down because of wickedness, if that kingdom changes and comes back to me and serves me, guess what I'll do? I'll, I'll take away the judgment. Isn't that what happened with the Assyrians? If they didn't change, what was going to happen to them? Jonah says you're going to go down. So God does that. He warns nations, the Assyrians, the Israelites, the Jews in the days of Jesus. What about the world we're living in today? Do you think God is extending judgment, maybe, to give people a chance to repent? Maybe so. What about the world in the days of Noah? How long did Noah preach? Did anybody remember? Probably some say between 75 and 125 years, somewhere in there. And what is Noah preaching? He's preaching righteous. He's trying, trying to get people to repent. Because why? What's coming? Judgment's coming. So my point is, God often gives people a chance to repent before bringing full judgment. And he does that because he's a merciful God. And he wants to give people a chance. And when people don't repent, and the period of time God allot, allots them to repent, guess what? No more excuse. So let me close by telling you this. Let me close by saying this to you. Every day God gives us on the earth is a chance to do right. And for the people who are alive today that we know who are not serving God and they're blaspheming God, for the Bill Mars who blaspheme God, the Richard Dawkins, the agnostics, the people in denominations, the people who are part of the Lord's church who have left him, today if they're alive, guess what God has given them? Another day to get right. 
And tomorrow, if they're alive, guess what tomorrow will be? Another day to get right. But there's going to come a time when there's no more chances. And when would those times come? Either they die before repenting or what else? The Lord comes back. So let's just be mindful of that. Let's be mindful of, of how every day is a chance to do right. And let's help the people who need to repent come to that before their time runs out. Because time will run out. Let's stop right there. Is that okay? We'll pick up with this next Sunday because, let me get this right, Wednesday is a singing. Right? Okay. So we'll pick up with this Lord willing next Sunday. Thank you.